Every year of my life, that's almost 52 years so far, the world has become a worse and worse place. Welcome to Nature That's Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This February 2021 edition, episode 147 of Nature Bats Last, comes to you live from Rakino Island in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and also from Central Florida in the United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm again joined today by my co-host, Professor Guy McPherson. Today's show includes a conversation with Dr. Paul Erlach, being Professor of Population Studies at Stanford University. Guy, will you do the honors, please? Thank you, Kevin. Today we are delighted to have Dr. Paul Ehrlich on the show for the fourth time. Dr. Ehrlich needs no introduction, and certainly not to our audience. Nonetheless, a few words are in order. Paul is the Bing Professor of Population Studies of the Department of Biology at Stanford University and president of Stanford's Center for Conservation Biology. He is a renowned biologist and ecologist best known for his warnings about the consequences of human population growth in light of a single finite planet. He has received a MacArthur Fellowship, the Blue Planet Prize, the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, the Eminent Ecologist Award from the Ecological Society of America, and the Crawford Prize in Biosciences, otherwise known as the Nobel Prize for disciplines not covered by the Nobel Prize. The list goes on, but we have a show to do. Professor Paul Ehrlich, welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. Uh, it's great to be here once again. How are you, Guy? Doing very well, thank you very much. Yeah, we will be taking your toll-free calls today. Please call us with your questions and comments after we spend a bit of time with our guest. We are most easily reached with a toll-free telephone call to 888-874-4888. Kevin, will you start us off? I will indeed. Paul, the last time we spoke, your voice was recovering from smoke inhalation from your time in Australia when the 2020 Australian forest fires were burning. They annihilated 3 million animals and it torched 20% of the continent's forests. How have you recovered from that? Well, uh, I've recovered reasonably well having come back to the United States to the California forest fires almost uh, continuously. And then, of course, we moved rapidly into the COVID pandemic, uh, which the Trump administration, to say they bungled it would be a huge compliment. They ended up killing several hundred thousand people by their stupidity. Uh, but, of course, as you know, the other things that administration has done is likely to kill a lot more people in the future. So uh, I can't be super cheery. Let's put it that way. Can you be? Uh, no, it's the perfect storm in every direction we look. Yeah, it's uh, a grim picture. And uh, those of us who are struggling to find ways to cure it uh, keep coming back to you because it's crystal clear that the basic problems are communication. That is, the scientific community, people like Guy and so on, have been saying the right things for years, and the media have been paying very little or no attention to it. Even today, uh, when we have a decent administration in the United States, I was just listening to a press conference in which uh, the president's press secretary was saying how we've got to get back uh, to more growth. And of course, as you know, growth is the disease, not the cure. Uh, and what we need to do is shrink the human enterprise humanely and equitably so we can 
manage to support decently the people that uh, we have on the planet. It's almost as, as if the entire culture is afflicted with the must-go-faster-must-get-bigger mentality, which doesn't make any sense at all, obviously, for anybody paying attention. Again, Professor Ehrlich, thank, thank you for joining us today. I'm going to start with a question about your latest peer-reviewed paper, Underestimating the Challenges of Avoiding a Ghastly Future. If you could wave your magic wand and transform everyone on Earth into educated individuals with compassion for humans and the living planet, each one aware of their planetary footprint and the science behind our ongoing planetary disaster, citizens and leaders alike. And let's assume that everybody has full knowledge of how to stabilize a human population and every other topic of importance. What would you like to see everyone do first? Well, uh, you really hit the first point, and that is everyone I would like to see uh, think about their children and thinking about the quality of the life their children might have for those who have not already made the decision don't have more than one child. Uh, but of course, there's all sorts of other things that should be done all the time. Uh, and uh, I think if everybody understood, we'd be doing it. We would be not just thinking about making the cars electric, but thinking about having many, many fewer cars. Uh, sharing cars, because most cars sit still most of the time, uh, when uh, if we, we already know how to build systems in which, say, five families could share a car uh, until we manage to rebuild our cities so they're not designed uh, with gigantic spreading uh, suburbs everywhere, which means wiping out our life support systems to pave them over in order to have highways. Uh, I think people would eat much less meat uh, because eating meat uh, is a way of wrecking our life support systems. Uh, the volume of cattle on the planet is absolutely stunning. Human beings and our big animals uh, are, for example, uh, bats have important Look, It sounds like we've lost Paul. Sorry? Oh, you have a terrible connection. Say it again. I'm sorry. Carry on anyway, Paul. I can hear you fine. Uh, I, I think you said carry on, so I'll carry on. Bats are mammals, and they have a very important job doing eating the insects that would otherwise eat our food uh, and things like that. So uh, there's lots of things people could do if they were educated, but of course I'm connected with a university uh, that actually educates them in the wrong way. So what can I tell you? We have a business school, uh, which, you know, business school's job is to take money from poor people and keep it for themselves. That's what they train people to do. But they also, uh, if they effectively uh, work to make the economy better, uh, it just leads to more growth. It's like having, uh, and they might as well have a cancer school as well as a business school in great universities so that they could, uh, you know, work on uh, how to make things better for the rich in the future. You know, in my experience with universities and colleges around the country and beyond, the entire institution might as well be a business school. It seems to me that money took over the goal of education. Making money on behalf of the university took over the goal of educating the people. 
a long time ago. Do you have any comments? Well, I wish I could disagree with you, but I can't. Money obviously uh, runs the universities, and virtually all of the things they do is shadowed by the fact of whether it will either disturb the legislators who vote money for support of public educational institutions or donors who give money to support places like Stanford University, where I happen to be associated and where, for example, we should have retracted uh, the degree we gave some years ago to a thug named Hawley, who's now a right-wing fascist uh, senator that you may have heard of. And every time they mention him, they say he was trained at Stanford. Uh, We we have a very effective machine uh, for oiling the machinery of society, but it never gives a thought to the direction the society is moving. Uh, And as is crystal clear to almost everybody now, societies are moving in the wrong direction. All right. I'd like to move on beyond society a little bit and into a little bit of science. Civilization is a heat engine, regardless how it is powered, according to at least five peer-reviewed papers by atmospheric scientist Professor Tim Garrett at the University of Utah. The first of these papers was published in Climatic Change about a decade ago. So, say I wave my other magic wand, my techno-fantasy wand, and all of the atmospheric carbon dioxide is magically sequestered back into Earth, civilization ceases to be a heat engine. How do we address the resulting loss of aerosol masking if we could actually achieve net zero emissions? Well, Is it uh, even possible? I, yeah, the answer is I don't know. It's outside of my area of expertise. What I do know is that the feedback mechanisms that are, seem to be coming in and dominating now tend to be positive feedbacks. And so one of the prospects is jacking the temperature way above uh, the two-degree or so-called target from the, uh, from the meeting in Paris years ago. Uh, and if it gets up to the plus six or eight degrees above uh, the pre-industrial norm, that's going to bring down civilization, maybe much before that. We're already in places like Pakistan and India, for example, uh, and parts of the southern United States, beginning to exceed the temperatures during the summer at which people can work outside. And if you don't have um, things like tractors and harvesters with air-conditioned cabs, you're going to start being short of food, even if the plants can continue to survive in the hotter, drier conditions that we're creating. So I'm not sure. I can't remember what the question was, uh, but the answer is... uh, if we could stop emitting uh, as much greenhouse gas as we're now emitting, that would be helpful, but it's nowhere near solving the overall problem because many things are changing the way the climate works and our agriculture is utterly dependent on the climate and agriculture is utterly dependent on things like soil organisms and pollinators, which are being destroyed uh, virtually around the world, and uh, human beings are dependent on not living on poisons, but we are gradually poisoning ourselves with the uh, 
for example, the microplastics that now enter our food chain coated with persistent pollutants that can cross the blood-brain barrier. Uh, for many people think that the Trump administration was simply a sign of the declining IQ of the human population. On average, people seem to be getting stupider, and one of the reasons is uh, that they have a, uh, an array of artificial chemicals in their bodies which are being loaded on all the time. In fact, there's a recent study uh, by Shanna Swan, uh, who's the expert on these things, that the human sperm count may actually drop uh, to the vicinity of zero by the middle of this century because of the poisoning. And, of course, that's not the population limitation method most of us would choose. Right. In fact, according to a comprehensive overview published by the European Strategy and Policy Analysis in April 2019, Quote, an increase of 1.5 degrees, that's 1.5 degrees above the 1750 baseline, is the maximum the planet can tolerate. At worst, such a rise in temperature of the, above the 1750 baseline will cause the extinction of humankind altogether. Well, we're beyond 1.5 degrees now, above the 1750 baseline. For, so, for a long time, I thought civilization was in great danger, but the chances of actually exterminating uh, humanity, forcing Homo sapiens to extinction, was relatively small. I think you were ahead of me on that one, if I recall, because I think that probability uh, is increasing, not only because of the climate disruption and the poisoning of the planet and so on, uh, or the unstable political situation where you have more and more stupid thugs like Trump running the world, uh, but also uh, because we still have the mutually assured imbecility of having thousands of nuclear weapons uh, in the United States, Russia, and elsewhere, uh, which, if they are used, and they could be by accident or purpose, particularly as things get worse, uh, have the potential for forcing humanity's population size down to the point where it may just dwindle away to extinction. I hate to think that, but... Um, more and more, I think that uh, as I watch uh, what's going on, uh, the more I think that probability is increasing, as do my colleagues. I mean, one of the reasons the gang of us wrote that paper is that we are convinced, as Jim Hansen, one of the top climate scientists, said some years ago, scientists are too reticent. They don't say what how serious the situation is, um, and that hasn't helped. The scientific community has tried to communicate how bad the situation is, but it's been largely ignored. In 1992, world scientists warning to humanity and a statement by all the science academies uh, of the world said if we didn't change our ways, we were screwed, and it didn't even get covered in the New York Times. And that was a long time ago. It was, and some 5,000 scientists signed on to a second statement saying the same thing, but we're worse off. Right, exactly. So it seems that we might have triggered the extinction of humankind with a death by a thousand cuts route. You, as a conservation biologist, understand better than almost anybody else the importance of the rate of change and the ongoing rate of environmental change. 
is faster than anything's probably since the PETM and maybe even before then. Uh, I, I know Kevin wants to get into the conversation here, so I'll, I'll stop asking questions. Hey, Kevin, are you still in New Zealand? Yes, I certainly am, and uh, you'd have to hit me with a baseball bat to get me to leave now. I won't get on an aeroplane. I wanted to come and, and join you and hopefully hook up with Dr. Andrew Glickson in Australia. But now I'd be too nervous to get on an aeroplane and leave the country because yeah. of the fact that I think that collapse could unfold at any time. And I want to give you a little bit of experience that I've had about collapse, with collapse. I was in Berlin one week before the Berlin Wall came down. There was not a hint that East Germany was just about to cease to exist and that the Soviet Union was going to unravel in the coming, in the following months. So I was there a week before the, the collapse got triggered and there was no hint of it whatsoever. That's how quickly these things can unfold. I, again, the connectivity is terrible, but I think I got all you said. And this is characteristic of what we basically have, and that is uh, two what scientists call uh, adaptive systems that are overlapping. One is the biophysical system, the ecosystems of the planet, and the other is our cultural social system. And... Uh, made up of basically small units that are struggling on their own uh, to do the best they can for themselves. And one of the characters, uh, your brain is such a system, by the way, a, a complex adaptive system. And But their characteristics is you cannot predict uh, what emergent properties there are going to be. You can predict that things are going to appear like the collapse of the Berlin Wall, uh, but you can't predict when it's going to happen. Uh, and so, for example, we can easily uh, predict what's going to happen if humanity's enterprise continues to grow. It's going to stop growing. Uh, but we can't predict exactly when it's going to stop or what the characteristics of the stop will be. Will it be a total collapse? Will it be, you know, will it be the bang or the whimper? And this is exactly the sort of thing that we expect in the kind of situation we're in. For example, virtually all scientists who knew anything about public health expected a pandemic and expected one to be fairly soon because the, uh, of the increased situation in transport because the Chinese kept um, having uh, a, a pig-duck pond system for generating viruses and so on. Uh, we all knew, and many of us wrote, I, Anne and I wrote in 1968 about it, and uh, subsequently in other papers, but we didn't know exactly when it was going to hit and what the characteristics of the virus was, and we're seeing uh, the lack of preparation, at least in the United States. New Zealand uh, at least has the same government, and it took some important steps, but the U.S. totally bungled it with help from Stanford University. Uh, some of the worst ideas that the Trump administration got came from a moron at Stanford University. So, uh, you know, uh, we, what, what you saw was exactly characteristic of the kind of system we're embedded in. And the, uh, we're going to have a lot more surprises, and I, my guess is 
that most of them will be very, very unpleasant. I think some of those surprises are going to come out of the melting permafrost. Out of the, yes, out of we, the melting we, permafrost, absolutely. The best um, climate scientist I know personally at the moment, and I won't give his name, uh, thinks that all the, the talk about cutting down CO2 is probably a waste of time, that the uh, methane emissions uh, from, the, from the Arctic, and I assume also the Antarctic, uh, is going to do us in uh, with very dramatic climate disruption. And, of course, the, as you probably have seen recently, uh, the ice melt is way, way faster and more dramatic than uh, the uh, IPCC suggested over recent years. And, of course, when you melt ice, you make the world hotter because ice reflects away the sun's energy and water absorbs it. Uh, and so the very rapid melting of the ice is going to even more rapidly change the climate of the planet than we expected. And when you realize that our food depends ultimately uh, dramatically on the climate, uh, it shows you what scientists think the future looks like, unfortunately, for our kids and grandkids, in my case, great-grandkids. Well, I think what, what your friend who, who wants to remain anonymous had, had suggested is that feedback loops are now in the driver's seat. And this is something that people used to talk about. All the big NGOs used to talk about feedback loops and tipping points. And now that we've crossed them, no one wants to talk about it. It's extraordinary. I, hey, I, we have a um, caller, Mimi, um, who would like to ask you a question. Uh, Studio, can you let Mimi ask a question, please? I, my problem is I'm having great difficulty hearing Kevin. I can hear Guy. Guy, can you repeat what Kevin said? Yeah, Kevin said we have a caller coming in. So Mimi from Portland is going to okay. ask a question or make a comment. Fine. Mimi, go ahead. It's, um, it's really nice to hear this interview. I was wondering why Dr. McPherson wasn't included in the article that you were talking about earlier. Um, I read the article, and it seemed a glaring omission to not have him involved with that article. And I was wondering if you had insight into why he wasn't included um, as a scientist and writer. I'm sorry, who, who, who was not included? Guy, Dr. McPherson. Ah, that that article was a result of trying to herd cats, and all kinds of people who either wanted to be in or wanted to be cited weren't. Um, if you have any idea how scientists try to work, on particularly on something which we thought probably would not get published, um, uh, we were very fortunate to find a new, um, uh, what do you say, a new journal uh, that was willing to take a chance uh, on the article, but I would not. I uh, would not defend any presence or absence, uh, except that you, what you're seeing is sort of an average over a very diverse group of scientists who happen to be in communication and talking about these things, and just decided to put it down. Um, so uh, <laughs> that's that's the basic answer. Um, not not. Um, how should I put it, not carefully planned, but 
uh, people coming up with good examples of the points they wanted to make and then trying to blend it all together. It, it just seemed a shame because there were points that weren't in the article that Guy's been talking about for so long. Um, you, can, that you can find at least 20 other people who have been talking about this stuff. Not, none of the things in the article are new. For example, I don't even know if Herman Daly was cited, but Herman was the first person uh, way back when who pointed out that the basic problem was growth and we had to change it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's person after person. It's, this is not brand new news to the scientists or the people who've been concerned uh, with this over time. One of the uh, I, major people who should have been uh, involved in the article uh, is John Holdren. But, of course, uh, I think his problem is that he's too tied in to trying to keep the Biden administration uh, to do the right things than to get involved in writing an article. So uh, don't think too much of the scientific community as a coordinated and well-oiled machine. That's one of the problems. One of the problems we tried to address in that, uh, in that article. Uh, all I can say, mea culpa. Okay, thank you. I'm going to hang up. I'd like to bring up a few of the points that I think we're missing from that ghastly futures paper. And perhaps you can comment. And if you don't want to, that's fine, too. Oh, no, no. We can no. And, and in fact, I've been trying to encourage people to write responses. In other words, I think there's a lot of stuff missing from it, stuff, stuff that means a lot to me uh, that, uh, that isn't in there. But you, you, you put in your two cents here, you got the chance. Right. So civilization is a heat engine, regardless of how it is powered, as indicated by at least five peer-reviewed papers authored by Professor Tim Garrett at University of Utah. And it's taking us, according to a paper by Burke and colleagues, from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, published December 26, 2018, it's taking us to the Pliocene. The, the best analog for the future is the Pliocene. Depending upon the IPCC's representative concentration pathways, they conclude that we're headed for the Pliocene as early as 2030. And of course, the representative concentration pathways ignore dozens of self-reinforcing feedback loops and the aerosol masking effect. Mid-Pliocene was at least two degrees C warmer than today. And that's that's getting there in a hell of a hurry, to say the least. Can well, that, you... that, of course, is something both of us agree strongly on, and that is the importance of rate, uh, that, that we're facing a rate problem now where whatever we do, we should be doing many, many times faster than we're doing it if we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, although you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody besides conservation biologists who understand the importance of the rate of environmental change. Can you provide a quick overview on that very topic, a little three-minute overview for the lay public listening, indicating how important the rate of change is, and maybe throw in an example? 
Yeah, because uh, one good example comes from uh, the the whole area of conservation. Uh, we now understand that the evolution of life on the planet has been basically interrupted. Uh, we're in the sixth big interruption at the moment, and the uh, the process of extinction is one that has gone on ever since uh, life evolved uh, several billion years ago. Uh, but it has not been an even rate of extinction, and it turns out that periodically the rate of extinction has gone up incredibly. The biggest uh, example of sudden rate change uh, was uh, about 90, about 65 million years ago when an asteroid hit the planet and wiped out something more than half of all the biodiversity uh, in a matter of hours to days. Uh, there has been careful studies of the background rate of extinction, uh, and it's not unusual uh, for there to be uh, a handful of extinctions every thousand years or so. What we're seeing now is very rapid extinctions on a rate of uh, uh, hundreds of species going extinct every few years, and on top of that, uh, the much more serious problem is that we are losing the populations of other organisms. For example, uh, nobody knows the exact number, but perhaps uh, as many as half of the insects on the planet, that is not half of the species, but half of the individuals have disappeared in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, even if that's just one-tenth of the individuals, insects play very important roles in our lives, uh, and uh, that rate is simply way, way, way beyond anything that we've that the planet has seen since 65 million years ago, and it's the first such event since we've had anything like people around you. People keep forgetting that uh, the, the modern human beings have only existed on the planet. They evolved um, for the last 300,000 years. A third of a million years is our lifespan. Uh, but that's a very long time compared to how long we've been practicing agriculture. 300,000 years of living as hunter-gatherers uh, as small groups, uh, it's only been about 10,000 years since we started practicing agriculture. And practicing agriculture in just the last 10,000 years is what has given us industry, it's given us property. It's given us racism. It's, you see, settling down allowed us to specialize. So everybody didn't have to work to get food. A farmer could support more than his own family. And that gave us mechanics, priests, soldiers, scientists, and so on. So you look at 300,000 years living as a small group animal in equitable groups. Uh, and then in just the last... 8,000, and really mostly in the last few hundred, the rate of change has gone up so dramatically that somebody, I'm almost 90 years old, in my single lifetime, there's been much more change in human society and its abilities and its technologies than in the entire 300,000 years before I was born. That's a difference in rate, and rate differences are critical. 
to us. If we had 10,000 years to, to adjust to having, uh, say, uh, three degrees Celsius above today's the pre-industrial average, I wouldn't worry about it at all. Uh, but when that change is likely to happen in the next few decades uh, or the next few hundred years, few hundred years to an evolutionist is a blink of the eye. And the kind of changes we're facing are that kind of change. You can, closing your eyes, if you do it gradually, you know, once you go to sleep, that's fine. That's the, the rate differences when you blink your eye. And we are living in eye blinks at the moment. Unfortunately, nasty eye blinks to a very large degree. Right. I'll point out, I'll point out another example of rate of change that we've known about for a while. The United Nations Environment Program put out a report in August of 2010, now more than 10 and a half years ago, indicating an estimated 150 to 200 species were being driven to extinction every 24 hours. That's a tremendous rate of change, and that indicates to me that we're in the midst of the current mass extinction event 10 and a half years ago, and maybe before then. Oh, yeah, even even before then, I'm sure. Uh, I right. mean, the, taking up agriculture, uh, it, it's weird because, of course, A, agriculture is utterly dependent on the natural systems with pollinators, seed dispersers, so on and so forth in it. And, of course, not just agriculture, but getting our food from the oceans. On the other hand, the way we've done it now, about a third of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system, uh, and uh, the other, and it, in addition, uh, the plowing over of everything and the huge use of pesticides, particularly the nicotinoids and so on, is itself acting, uh, uh, is itself attacking the life support systems on which agriculture is dependent. So it's a very complex system, and unwinding it and changing it to a sensible system is a huge challenge, which is basically not being taken at the moment. You're absolutely right. 2010, we were already way into the sixth mass extinction. Um, Paul, we have another caller, uh, Steve Solmany. Steve, would you like to ask Paul your question, please? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, can you hear me, uh, uh, Kevin? Yes, indeed. You can hear me? Uh, first, I, I want to thank. I can only barely hear you, Kevin. Uh, sorry, is this better? That's better. Better. Thank you. Uh, first, I want to thank you, Kevin, for this uh, opportunity. I know we've tried before, and I'm I'm delighted to be here now. Uh, also, the honor of uh, communicating just for a few minutes with uh, Guy and Paul is uh, is a wonder to me. And uh, I thank you all for this opportunity. My question is this. Is there any value to be derived from understanding why it is that human population numbers have exploded as they have within the last 200 years? Yeah, I... I think there's great value uh, to understanding both why it exploded uh, and 
and also why in some places they've managed to, re- uh, to move towards reducing population. The reason it exploded primarily uh, was improvements in public health uh, and not, not medicine so much as uh, learning to put screens on your windows uh, and uh, learning to, I mean, for example, in England, a very smart doctor in the middle of a plague, um, a cholera plague, figured out that the, uh, uh, that the disease was being carried uh, from sewage that was crossing into a, uh, a source of water for a pump, and he got the pump knocked down and ended the, uh, the entire plague. In other words, getting relatively clean water, being able to avoid uh, mosquitoes, uh, building up uh, cities after great fires and great plagues, um, building them up uh, in, can, with um, uh, stonework and so on where rats could not live so easily. We did lots of things that uh, very much reduced, particularly the infant and child mortality rates, um, which led to uh, expanses of population. Uh, and then gradually, as the, uh, as the value of children changed with industrialization, before industrialization, kids were really important as farm labor. After industrialization, uh, they became expensive things to educate and changes in attitude towards children and also changes in attitude towards women and women getting more opportunities, even though nowhere in the world do women have anything like equal rights and opportunities to men. Still, things did improve. And as a result, in some places, um, birth rates dropped. So understanding the, uh, what, has, what factors have been involved in changes in the size of human population, very important to plan in humane ways to get the human population shrinking. That means, uh, and of course, that means giving everybody uh, uh, modern contraceptive technology, having backup abortion available, uh, giving women, if you can do it, absolutely equal rights and opportunities. That would be the way to start towards universal population shrinkage, uh, which is absolutely essential. uh, And we need to give great help and uh, first of all, the getting the rate down in rich countries like the United States, which are the most overpopulated nations, because overpopulation just isn't numbers of people, it's how much they consume, and we're the super consumers. But also, uh, it's necessary for populations in poor countries uh, to go down, and one of the ways to do that is to redistribute wealth. Because if they are wealthier, the value of children will change, the rights of women will change, and their birth rates will come down. And we are facing uh, huge problems of migration. The the stuff that you see in the papers in the United States is nothing compared to what's coming because people are, as the environmental situation deteriorates, people are going to move in gigantic numbers and we haven't been preparing ourselves for humane ways to deal with that. Uh, Paul, could I uh, ask you and, and Guy to turn attention 
just for a moment to um, the uh, scientific research. It's been around now for a couple of decades from Hoffenberg and Pimentel regarding um, human population numbers as they relate to a continuously increasing food supply for human consumption. Uh, you want to go answer it, Guy? Can you repeat the question? I'm not sure I understand. Yeah. Oh, sure. Uh, uh, guy, um, the, the, the question is, could we turn our attention for a moment to the uh, science that has, it is, 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 was developed now two decades ago by Hoffenberg and Pimentel that very simply and, and remarkably um, presents evidence for occurring as a function of food supply and that the increase of food supply to feed a growing population is an example of upside-down thinking. What we need to be doing is gaining some control of the food supply. And I'm concerned that if we don't think of humane and creative ways to do that, I'm no longer able to hear our caller, but I understand the question. The more food we grow, the more people we grow. And so we can approach this human numbers dilemma in a variety of ways. But if we keep choosing uh, compassion by feeding all the people on Earth and making sure that they remain well-fed, that's going to take us into the realm of even more people. And so how to deal with this? Well, th this isn't an issue that it's come up with in the last two decades. This is an issue that Garrett Hardin and Paul Ehrlich and others were talking about and writing about in the 1960s. So this has been going on for a long time. How do you compassionately deal with the ongoing increasing human population on Earth short of not providing food, which is the obvious but inhumane way to get rid of people. Paul, I don't remember when you wrote the piece on the mob, the mob blog called Too Many Rich People, but this is perfect. This is the yeah, perfect it's time important, to explain it's what you to mean remember. by that, what you mean by too many rich people and the impact of not only the numbers of people, but the consumption of those people. Can you, can you yeah, connect those dots? The, the basic point is that, uh, first of all, let me give my ethical position on this. I think there are many too many people on the planet to give everyone the life that most people would like. Say, just say a Mexican level standard of living uh, or something like that. We're still way beyond that. And my ethical position is that we should take the best care we can of the people we've got, even though there are too many of them, 
while we find humane ways, what I was just discussing, uh, to shrink the population so that everybody can have a decent life without wrecking our life support systems, because we're in a situation of overshoot. Uh, We are uh, basically destroying our life support systems to support more people than can be sustained on a long-term basis on the planet. In other words, we are using we are living on our capital, not on our interest from nature. We are destroying our natural capital. Uh, and the uh, it's also, while if we did distribute everything equally in some sense according to need, uh, we'd have enough food to nourish uh, everybody on the planet at the moment. We don't even begin to do that. There's of the almost 8 billion people on the planet, something on the order of 2 billion of them don't have real adequate diets. They lack micronutrients. They may be actually short of calories. We're getting in the situation in the United States today where uh, I believe the latest I heard was one in seven families uh, are nutritionally insecure. So we have a huge distribution problem we don't want to face and a more basic problem of having too many people overall so that if we if we actually fed them all adequately today we would be destroying the capital on which the system depends and it's not just food it's all the other stuff that we think we either need or think we need so when you talk about population you have to talk also about how much each person consumes as Some people say, oh, it's not a population problem, it's just a consumption problem. That's like saying the area of a rectangle is a length problem, not a width problem. The the basic problem is overall consumption, and that is determined by how many people there are, how much each person on average consumes, and what kind of technologies and social arrangements you use to service the consumption. Uh, and it's ridiculous. To, it's equally ridiculous to say all the problems of the world are a population problem, as it is to say all the problems of the world are a consumption problem. The basic problems of the world are too many people consuming too much on average, and that's what we've got. To, and and often using malign technologies, and those are the things that we've got to change. Right. About eight months ago, you co-authored a paper in the National Proceedings, National Academy of Sciences. The, the paper is titled "Vertebrates on the Brink as Indicators of Biological Annihilation and the Sixth Mass Extinction." Now, I know it's eight months ago, and I can barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So <laughs> this might be a stretch. I can't even remember. Can you give us an, over- <laughs> can you give us an overview of? How and yep. why vertebrates are on the brink, and what brink are you talking about anyway? Well, what we're seeing is a an incredibly rapid decline of other kinds of organisms on the planet. We keep the best information tends to be about our biologically closest relatives, the other animals with backbones, particularly birds and mammals. So we often use them as surrogates, for the things we can't see. It may be, for example, that soil organisms are fundamentally more important to human beings uh, than birds. 
uh, even though we like birds and don't see the soil organisms. But we think that the birds and mammals uh, give us, and the, the reptiles and, and amphibians and fishes, uh, give us a signal for what's happening to all of biodiversity, including the plants and microorganisms and the multitudinous invertebrates of which insects are the ones we know the most about. Uh, and when we look at them, uh, we can see uh, the process of their extinction going on around us all the time. We're not, it isn't that we every day wake up and there's three fewer species we know about, but every day we wake out, up, there are fewer organisms, fewer individuals in each species. Every member that the extinction of a species involves, first of all, uh, exterminating all the populations of the species. Uh, and that can take a very long time. But one of the problems is that once you have um, uh, exterminated enough populations, the usefulness of the species to humanity disappears. For example, uh, if we wiped out the honeybees in North America, uh, that would be wiping out many, many, many populations of honeybees. It would cost, one estimate was about $19 billion in economic loss just from the honeybee as a pollinator. Uh, but if you wiped out all North American honeybees, the species would still be around. There's lots of hon honeybees in Africa, in South Asia, where they originally evolved. So they're still there. Nonetheless, uh, the population extinctions would have had huge effect on humanity. And that's true in general. What we are, what I and my uh, two colleagues on this, or my colleagues on that paper and similar papers, are pointing out that the focus on loss of species is the wrong, wrong focus. If every other species of other animals, skip Homo sapiens for the moment, uh, if all the other species of other animals and plants were reduced to a single small permanent population, uh, you would have no loss of species. In the view of many people, there would be no extinction crisis, and Homo sapiens would go extinct, because we can't get along with just one population of corn, one population of bats, one population of uh, um, rice, you name it. Uh, it's the multitudinous individuals and multitudinous populations of other organisms which support our lives. We're sawing off the limb we're sitting on, and we're doing it morally, and what's so scary to conservation biologists is we're doing it faster and faster, so fast that we are seeing the effects. Uh, now, anybody who's done a lot of field work has seen the effects. I've visited many, many places where once there were populations of an organism I was interested in, and they're now gone. Uh, when I started at Stanford, I worked for decades with three populations of butterflies on Stanford land. Today they're gone. Uh, and that's happening around the world. And so uh, it's a very good reason to be nervous. One, one of the uh, lines that, uh, one of the things that I've discovered during the pandemic is that the educational, the vaunted educational system in the United States doesn't teach people about exponential growth 
or exponential decay. Uh, and a good rule on exponential growth is a long history of exponential growth in no way implies a long future. Uh, what happens in exponential growth traditionally is you grow to, you hit a limit, and then it's all over. And uh, as scientists wrote 50 or so years ago, there are limits to growth. And that famous study uh, turns out has, has been exactly right on all the issues it looked at, essentially. So we are coming up on limits to growth. And the fact that we had a huge burst of growth over the last 150, 200 years doesn't tell us, in spite of the daydream believers that we call economists, uh, we're not going to have another 150 or 200 years of growth. No matter if there's all kinds of signs, the growth is over. Final question. I want to circle back to where I started. And when I started, I, I asked you a question that was contingent upon everybody in the world understanding everything that's going on. Now, though, let's talk about what to do in the real world. We're in the midst of a mass extinction event. We're in the midst of abrupt, irreversible climate change. Now, how do we proceed in light of a largely ignorant population that doesn't seem concerned about anything except what movie is playing at the theater and what food they can get at the grocery store. And I'm sorry, but we're running out of time. So if you give us the, the quick I, overview, I what you a, do we do in this world? I can give you a quick answer because you've got a clue of it right in there. We have to move more to entertainment. We have proven that giving people, telling people more science does not change their behavior. But we can show that by... Um, molding the science into things like soap operas and doing the right kind of photography and so on, we can start to change people's minds and get results. So a huge burden, if you're looking at the academic side, goes into the humanities and the arts. If we can't recruit better communication into the system, uh, I don't even think we'll get a start on moving in the right direction. Uh, but we are trying to work very much with uh, artists and with uh, and with people in literature and so on to move in the right direction. I don't think we're going to. I I can't be optimistic. But then again, as uh, uh, as Kevin pointed out, I wouldn't have been optimistic about the wall coming down in Germany uh, in 1980 either. Hey Paul, uh, we're at very close to the end of the show now. I'm going to have to thank you very very much for your valuable time yet again. Um, I'll send you some um, throat elixir from New Zealand to uh, help repair the damage I, that those... You're wonderful. Uh, That's unnecessary, but I hope we can do it again sometime, particularly sometime when I can hear you. <laughs> yeah, cool. I'm sorry about that. Hey, uh, thank you very much to our callers today and as well, Afrazin, for our theme music. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern. Our next episode is scheduled to air live on the 2nd of March, 2021. Uh, if you miss the broadcast, you can find the shows in the archives at prn.fm, the Podbean, or at Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, continue to follow the Nature Bats last blog, guymcpherson.com, for further updates, interviews, and speaking tours, and you can keep up with my work at kevinhester.live. 
Until the next time, remember the dominant culture has been very clever, but in the end... Eat your bats last. Thanks a lot, Kevin. I gotta go. That's almost 52 years so far, and the world has become a worse and worse.